Hi, and welcome to this U20 podcast. We are a group of young Christians in Montreal learning how to serve Jesus in the city. Today, our podcast is based on Luke 14, where Jesus talks about the cost of being a disciple. Hope you enjoy. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So that was Luke 14, 25 to 35. Why don't we pray together? God, as we open up your word, the word of God, the word that illuminates our life, helps us to see what is true, what is necessary, what is real. We ask, God, that you might, you might correspond by opening our hearts, our, our minds, our eyes and ears to hear, to respond rightly to what you're calling from us. We thank you for the insistence in your word that we meet you on your terms. We understand the importance of this, God. We pray, Lord, that you help us to make those steps in our hearts and in our lives to meet you rightly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was, I think it's probably past now, but there used to be a time in television where uh, like catchphrases were pretty big. Like a lot of characters would have their little like quip, their little thing that they would say once in a while and they would become kind of known for that. The Simpsons was good at it. What, was, like, what are some of the like catchphrases? Ay caramba. Ay caramba, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Oh like stuff Dow. like that, yeah. Uh, yeah, the Simpsons are good at it. There's other shows out there that, that do it pretty well. What's, um, oh, I hate the show, but we're like uh, Big Bang Theory. What's the guy's name, the tall dude? Bazinga. Bazinga, Sheldon. Yeah, Bazinga. Yeah, Joey, how you doing? And friends, that's true. So, yeah, like they, they're these things that kind of stick in our mind. They, they, they stick in our subconscious. They, they come really quickly when we think about it. Uh, they're kind of like the earworms of television. We can hear them uh, and immediately be brought back into that moment. And I got thinking about catchphrases when I was reading this passage today because what we're looking at today is quite typical of Jesus. He says this kind of stuff a lot. Uh, it could almost be considered sort of his, his go-to kind of rhetoric 
I mean, you can't really condense it down to a catchphrase, but this, what Jesus is saying in this passage is fairly typical of what Jesus calls us to. Uh, and I was thinking about that idea, and I thought, what would be kind of the catchphrase of our generation? Uh, and it immediately came to me in a memory that I had. I was walking down uh, Sherbrooke, uh, kind of sort of, uh, I guess, going, going west of here. And I just so happened to be walking behind these three girls who I guess were like kind of university aged. Uh, and they were talking to each other. And I couldn't help but hear what they were talking about. And I don't actually remember the topic of the conversation. But I remember having this glass shattering moment when I realized how many times they kept saying the same three words, I just feel. Where they'd be like, I just feel that da 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 And the next one would respond, is like, yeah, and I just feel that da 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 I just feel, and I just feel, and I just feel. It was so constant. Like every single one of them was saying them in every single response that they had to each other. I just feel. And the reason some of you are laughing is because you know how guilty you are of this. Like, it's all the time. I just feel. And now I will take responsibility. My generation brought like into the world. Like, before us, like wasn't used as ubiquitously as it is today. We brought it in, okay, but I did not, and will take no responsibility for I just feel. It, and ever since then, it, I can't not hear it. It keeps grating against me whenever it happens. And I think it's a good example of a larger cultural shift that's taking place. Uh, there's something, uh, I, okay, so it's an example of, it can be an example at least, of something which some, some people have coined the death of the expert. Uh, where culturally speaking, we no longer hold experts uh, in the place of authority that we used to. And it's far more common these days to reject uh, other people's worldview in replacement for my own. That kind of attitude of saying, well, my experience tells me this, and so this is how I'm going to live my life. It doesn't matter what you think, even if you are educated, it doesn't matter. And we see this at every level. We see this sort of like at the higher levels of, of leadership where people kind of ignore the advice of the experts in the field and say, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. We're going to do this. Or you see it down, down, down through you know, company practices all the way down to the individual saying like, well, yes, I understand that people do it this way, but I'm going to do it that way. And it comes down to this very individual type of mentality saying that my experience is equally valid of the experience of other people's no matter what expertise they claim to have. And this is, again, if you see it sort of as a building narrative, this is another, just another example of a greater narrative, which is that we as a society continually are casting off what are called meta-narratives. Meta-narratives are the things that we typically would use to define us. And so a meta-narrative would be what country you belong to, or what religion you belong to, or what family you come from. These things which uh, you are larger than you, being part of a community greater than you and having an identity that comes from that, we as a culture more and more are throwing these things off and saying they do not have any power to define me. I define me. And so it doesn't matter what family I come from. It doesn't matter what religion or what country or blah, 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 blah. I'm going to choose who I am. And I'm going to forge my own path forward. And so it draws everything inwardly and says, who I am must be built from the inside out, not the outside in. And meaning and, and fulfillment, uh, well, the, the sort of the, the meaning of life is self-fulfillment. 
you now get to follow your own heart. That could be the other catchphrase of this generation. Follow your heart, right? Like, what is the meaning of life? You decide. Go and define it yourself. Go and follow your own heart and find it. And so it's all built under this very individualistic type of model that we've adopted. And it's very opposed to historically what 99% of the human race has, has been about. It's very opposed to what a large, large, large communities around the world today are all about today, which is still about uh, getting your identity from the role you play within society rather than getting your identity from yourself. And the attitude is now today, uh, my own fulfillment and my own needs are the, mo the most real thing that I have. And they supersede any other commitment upon me. In other words, as I go forward, the most important thing to me is that my needs get fulfilled. And if they don't, if, if someone tries to step upon my needs and, and I have a right to my needs and if you tell me no, well then I'm oppressed. Well then, I, then, then you know, this makes me a victim. And I understand that what I'm saying is probably a gross oversimplification of the fact and, and I understand and like, I appreciate that fact that there's far more going on than just that. But what I think is unquestionable is that we're experiencing this massive shift in thinking away from a kind of communal identity to an individual identity. And with that shift, we're shifting from kind of more of an honor-based culture where, it, where you would, it was in sacrificing your needs to a greater cause, that would be the goal, that would be what you aspire to do, to a more uh, withhold, like, maintaining and establishing my dignity. That's becoming more and more a culture where I need to make sure that like, I am living as a person who has full dignity. And so that's about my needs and what I need and, and, and establishing and protecting that. And this is something that's still ongoing and continuing to develop and change the world and, and we're, we're seeing it in real time. And I'm fascinated to see what it's, how much it's going to change, what it means to be a family, what it means to be a nation, what it means to be in a workplace, or all these different ways it can unfold. And I'll be honest, I'm pessimistic about the, the process, but it is fascinating to watch unfold. And so we're not sure exactly where this is going to take us as a culture. There's still things that are being worked out about it. But one thing that is absolutely clear, should be clear from the outset, is that such thinking is completely contradictory to Christianity. Where Christianity will smash heads with this kind of thinking. It'll be, it's, you know, heading for a head-on collision, absolutely. And we see in Jesus' teaching this type of thing that he said today, tonight uh, over and over again, where he stresses that to follow him will mean you have to come to him on his terms or not at all. You cannot adopt him uh, in the way that you feel fits best. You have to take him as an all or nothing type of option. And Jesus does not want anyone to be unaware of this fact. The reason why he talks about it so much is because he doesn't want anyone to be unaware of this fact. He would quite typically, uh, thousands of people come to him have the start of this amazing movement, perhaps, you know, a mega church is about to form, and then he would tell them something like this and scare them all away. They would all be freaked out and they would walk away and he would take a, a crowd of thousands and whittle it down to just dozens. 
To tell them that to count the cost was something crucial to Jesus. To tell them that to follow him took a death of self, a death of the way I want to live, was crucial to him. Jess said it really well tonight when she said, when you become a Christian, uh, your life doesn't go as planned. I think that's the perfect way of putting it. That is exactly right. When you become a Christian, your life now is no longer your own. A Jesus cannot be known except for total commitment. You cannot know him without it. Without being a, a full-blooded disciple, uh, there's no kind of, I don't know, 30-day money-back trial for Christianity. You're like, you know, try it now. If you don't like it, we'll send, you know, send it right back. It's all good. It doesn't work that way. It has to be all or nothing. And, the, and we kind of may intuitively understand why this is the case. I think a good example is when you look at people who are highly, highly skilled in a particular field, it is impossible for you to truly walk in their shoes, to understand what it's like to be them, unless you have committed yourself to the same degree that they have. For instance, if like an astronaut, right? Like you will never know what it's like to be an astronaut because to do so requires this huge amount of commitment of time and energy and education and whatever else before you get there. And there's almost no chance that any of us are going to be able to do that at this point in life at least. Uh, and even if we tried, there's a, such a small window of opportunity there as well. This is one of those things that we get it, like you cannot know what it's like to be an astronaut unless you fully commit to this and it, it becomes this, you know, life, this lifetime devotion to do it. And it, so that we understand and the, the basic premise is there are certain things in life that only by limiting my options now does it open up other options, greater, deeper options later down the track? I must, and the same is true for marriage too, uh, only by limiting my options now am I going to be able to enter into a relationship with someone that over time, if I do this consistently, will open up new options further down the track, new options of intimacy, new options of uh, gratification and, and, and deep, deep love. That will only open up over time, and this is what Jesus is talking about. You want to know me? You want to follow me? That's the only way to do it. You can only come to me in this full commitment, and if you don't, you will never know me. You will never be able to get to know me unless you do this. For Jesus, to be his disciple means to give him your number one loyalty. He has to be number one in your life. And, and that involves putting yourself in a vulnerable state. You can't have one foot in this camp and one foot in the other camp. It doesn't work that way. True commitment means investing yourself to the point that if it failed, you would suffer great loss. That's what Jesus is calling us to. You know, test the, the water with both feet kind of thing. Like you have to go in and... Uh, I've done some rock climbing uh, in my days and I've done some like uh, uh, rappelling and, and different stuff like that. And all that involves tying your own knots. And so you, you kind of get this little shackle on you and you have to do this sort of this knot. Uh, and then there's always kind of this point of no return where you have to lean back and let this rope take your weight. And it's that point that you have to commit and if you, like, there's no way around it. Like, if, you don't, if you're not willing to commit, you can't do it. 
And so multiple times, you know, I, you, know you tie your own knot and then you're kind of in this moment of hesitation where you're like, did I really do this right? Because you lean back over a cliff or you, you, know, you, you kind of let it go. Like if you're rock climbing indoors, you kind of get to the top and you drop back uh, and you're going to find out whether your commitment was good or not. Like, and there was a guy, there's a guy who comes to church. I think his name's Daniel. He's graduated since and moved on. But yeah, he's become Yeah, so there's a guy that, that I think Hope introduced me to him. But yeah. he was at uh, Alley Up yeah. uh, and he tied his own knot. He got to the top uh, and he let go and he didn't do it right. And then it just swoop, and it just fell right out of the, the shackle and he fell like, what is it, like, th- what is it, Alley Up? Like 30 feet? all the way down, bam, onto like, it's, ma- it's got mattresses, so he didn't die. But he really, really hurt himself. Like he busted his back hard. Uh, yeah, uh, so his commitment, I mean, it was bad, like, no, like bad idea. Like that was a, he, he, it failed and he suffered loss. That's what commitment looks like though. You're committing yourself to the point that if it failed, you suffer loss. And Praise the Lord, like I've never fallen from such a horrible height. Uh, but binding yourself to Jesus requires that you bind yourself to the point of vulnerability. That if he doesn't come through, if he's not who he says he is, then your life is a failure. Like you've failed, you've, you've suffered great, great loss. And it's only by limiting yourself in this way, putting yourself in this vulnerable state, do you actually follow him truly. And this is what Jesus Christ is calling us to, ultimate commitment. And when he talks about it here, he says, you know, unless someone is willing to hate uh, their father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, their own life. I know that some of us will understand this already because, you know, we, it comes up a lot in church. But when he's speaking about hate, he's not literally meaning hate. I mean, we're dealing with the same Jesus who talks about loving your enemies. Is it truly the case that you say love your enemies but hate your son? Like, No. <laughs> What he's talking about here is when, when, when viewed in comparison to, when you look at the love you are to have for me, it must be so, such a, a magnitude of order higher that it would seem as if you hated. That is one definition. A simpler way of understanding it is a way that the Old Testament uses it uh, with essentially the idea of choice. Uh, you choose him over your family. You choose him over your brothers and sisters, even your own life. Uh, it, it says, I, I guess it's in Genesis where it says, um, uh, where, Jesus, where God is talking about uh, picking and he says, you know, Isaac I loved and Esau I hated. I got that right? Mm-hmm. Jacob, right? Sorry. Thanks, Christopher. He, uh, it's not literally talking about hating uh, Esau because he didn't, like he actually goes on to bless Esau and, and Esau is, uh, becomes a very influential figure. Uh, but he chooses one over the other. And that's the same idea that Jesus is bringing out here. When it comes down to it, you choose me. You choose me over your f- father and mother. You choose me over your wife or children. You choose me. Be ready to lay anything aside for the sake of the kingdom. What doesn't mean as a Christian that to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's going to cost you your job, your friends, your wealth, your family. But it means that it might. It might do that. And we can certainly see over church history that for many, many faithful Christians, it has cost them their family. It has cost them their life, their children, their, their wealth, their stability. It has cost them that. Not only historically speaking, but even today, many Christians around the world, this is a real choice that they're put up against, where to be a Christian will mean 
choosing against your mother and father or something like that. And the cost is real. And we today, sitting in this room, need to be committed to such a point that we would be willing to do the same. And we don't know whether we are committed to such a point. We can confess to it, and we can confess that it's right. We should look to Jesus and say, you're right. You're right to demand this of me. We won't know until we are presented with the opportunity to, to, to put it into practice whether or not we are. And, and I know that about myself, so what I do is says, I pray. I pray, God, if it ever came down to it, I want to choose you. I want to choose you, and I believe that God will give me the grace to match the situation, and I know he will because that's exactly what he promises, to match the situation if, if it ever came. That if I had to choose between him and my wife or him and my children or whatever it is, I would choose him. But we have small examples each and every day where, the, where we're going to see how our heart is really aligned. Are we going to choose him or not? Are we going to choose him in the workplace? Are we going to choose him with our friend groups? Are we going to choose him even though it may cost me this or that? I had a conversation with my mom about this once when I became a Christian a couple of years after I became a Christian. I don't actually even remember the context of the conversation, but what I do remember is that she was telling me to do something that I knew was, was not correct. Uh, and I said to her, like, no, I, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and I think it was just about a family commitment, like, coming to be with the family on Sunday instead of going to church or something like that. I honestly don't remember. But I told her, and I tried to say it softly, but I said, Mom, you need to know, like, God is more important to me than you and Dad are. And it really, really hurt her. Like, it hurt her deeply to, to, say, to, to hear me say that, and she was re really upset by it. I, I could say, like, now since then, it, like, she understands what I meant by that, and she's come, she says, yeah, that makes sense. I understand why that is the case. But in the moment, it, it really, really hurt her. And that's the kind of thing we're going to come up against uh, in small and great ways. People these days will, will always, almost without fail, at least in our context, say, it's okay that you're a Christian. Be a Christian all you want, but just don't take it too seriously, you know? <laughs> Like, any time that Christianity will, will either cost them something, you being a Christian will cost them something, which can happen in, in a family setting, can happen in a work setting, different things like that. Then they're like, oh my gosh, come on. Like, why you got to be so, like, radical about it? Why you got to be so dogmatic about it? Why you got to be such a fundamentalist about it? You know, they, they'll, they'll say, they'll have that kind of attitude. Don't take it so seriously. It's okay to have a little bit of Jesus in your life. You know, it's good. It's helpful. Believe in something. Woo! But if, it, if you start to take it too seriously, then they're going to start getting concerned. And when I started telling my parents, no, I, I want to become a pastor. I don't want to go into the field. But they, they were extremely excited for me to go into a particular field. And I said, well, as much as I'd love that, I think this is a better field for me. It's a hard, hard thing for them to come to terms with. They, they, they really wrestled with it. They really tried to talk me out of it. But I knew. And, and that is just a small thing. But it, those kind of things will come up again and again. When we find ourselves in places where our heart is split in two directions, Jesus is saying, you come with me. You've got to come with me. And that's what it means to be my disciple. Not only in the sense of avoiding what is bad, but in the sense of choosing what is good. Where it's very possible to live a life where all we're focused on is saying, well, I just won't do bad things. That is not even half of what we are called to do as Christians. We are called to pursue the good, to lay down our lives actively, 
to, towards a certain goal. And that is why, that's, again, we're coming back to this reason why it is that Jesus Christ is calling us to what he's calling us to here. Because the life that we are promised by him requires that we, we take these big leaps of faith, requires that we go out of our way to glorify God. We cannot simply think to live a, particular, a kind of ordinary life if we want to continue to follow him. Uh, N.T. Wright had a great, uh, a great uh, metaphor here that kind of helped us understand why Jesus Christ is calling us to such a radical commitment. He says this, Think of the leader of a great expedition forging a way through a high and dangerous mountain pass to bring urgent medical aid to villages cut off from the rest of the world. If you want to come any further, the leader says, you'll have to leave your packs behind. From here on, the path is too steep to carry all that stuff. You probably won't find it again. And you'd probably be you'd better send the last postcards home. This is a dangerous route, and it's very likely that several of us will not make it back. He says, we can understand that. We may not like the sound of it, but we can see why it would make sense. This is the kind of thing that Jesus Christ is calling us to, this type of lifestyle. These are, this is the worldview that we adopt in which we understand discipleship. We understand how it's supposed to function. And when we connect ourselves to Jesus in this way, we begin to truly be his disciples. But so often we fall short of this. Our lives settle for something that John Eldridge will call the Christianity of tips and techniques. Where it's just about sort of like platitudes and just about little helpful hints along the way. And we can settle for that instead of pursuing intimacy and empowerment from Jesus. I'll read it. It's a bit of a longer quote, but I want to read it from him as well. This is John Eldridge. He says, It's a whole different perspective on how we approach the day. Either we wake to tackle our to-do list get things done, guided by our morals and whatever clarity we might have in the moment. Or we wake in the midst of a dangerous story as God's intimate ally, following him into the unknown. If you are not pursuing a dangerous quest with your life, well then, you don't need a guide. If you haven't found yourself in the midst of a ferocious war, then you won't need a seasoned captain. If you've settled in your mind to live as though this is a fairly neutral world and that you're simply trying to live your life as best you can, then you can probably get by with the Christianity of tips and techniques, maybe. I'll give you a 50-50 chance. But if you intend to live the story that God is telling, if you want the life He offers, then you're going to need more than a handful of helpful pr principles, no matter how noble they may be. There is too many twists and turns in the road ahead, too many ambushes waiting only God knows where, too much at stake. You cannot possibly prepare yourself for every situation. Narrow is the way, said Jesus. How shall we be sure to find it? We need God intimately. We need Him desperately. And that forms a nice segue into the next thing that Jesus Christ talks about, which is these, these two parables that he tells. The first parable, and, and it's emphasizing again the commitment that is re required of us here. The two parables have similar points, but what I discovered today as, as I was reading the commentaries on this passage is they actually don't have the same point, and I, I found that really interesting. Uh, you look at the two parables he tells. He tells a parable about a person who's trying to build a tower and, and looks at if he has the right funding to do so. And the next thing is a, a king who's going to war. 
and seeing if he has the troops that, that will meet the necessity of the situation. Uh, and two of them have a similar point in that there is a cost required here and you have to count the cost. But they have slightly different points. The first one, the building parable, is really Jesus saying, make sure that you can afford to follow me. There's a sense of, uh, this is, at least in this, this parable, there's an option here. Either I do or I don't. Either I build this, this tower or I don't. It's my choice. And Jesus is saying, look, the choice is yours. Follow me or not. If you follow me, count the cost because this is going to require a cost. But the second parable doesn't have that same sense of an option to it. When you read it, you see a king is going to war against another king. But the, the, it says like a... Uh, so, so I'll read the whole thing. Or suppose a king is going to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose, oppose the, the one who is coming, coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. This man is not in an optional situation. He is in a war. This king is coming, and he has to decide whether he's going to fight or whether he's going to offer terms of peace. And the difference here is that Jesus is not asking, can you afford to follow me? The question Jesus is asking is, can you afford to refuse my demands? Can you afford to refuse my demands? I think what Jesus Christ is pointing here, here to is the inevitability of judgment. God is coming. For all of us, he is coming. This king is coming. And while he is still a long way off, you need to decide. Are you going to fight him or are you going to make peace with him? Are you going to give him what is his due and submit to his will? I think that's a very poignant lesson and a powerful interpretation of the parable here. It highlights the logic of the claim that Jesus Christ is making here. The demand for everything makes sense when you bear in mind the necessity of making a decision and who it is that we're dealing with here. This is God we're dealing with. This is the, you know, the one who will judge us one day. Coming now, we need to decide, am I going to fight him or am I going to submit to him? The demand for Everything, including yourself, makes sense when we realize what we're dealing with here. The stakes are that high. And so we have a choice, but the choice cannot be that we invite him in on our terms. And Timothy Keller points out that if there is an if in your obedience, then you are still in control and you have made God your servant. If you're saying, I will follow you, Jesus, if, I get to do this, or if you don't call me there, or if this, or if that, if it doesn't cost me that much, I will follow you, then you are still in control. God, you've invited him in to be your servant, to be your butler, to offer you helpful advice that you may or may not follow, but that's it. If you haven't taken the, your hands off of your life, then there's still going to be an if to your obedience. And is that the logical response to God? To God? Of course not. I was listening to a podcast today, and they were talking about this, uh, this mythical, I guess like folklore type of creature uh, that exists in Hawaiian uh, uh, culture called the Night Marchers. 
And to cut a long story short, uh, if the, according to this folklore, if you kind of find yourself face to face with one of these supernatural beings, the only way to save your life is to take off all of your clothes, to lie face down on the ground, to close your eyes and press your like, face into the ground and then wet yourself, like urinate. And if you do that, then you've showed like, enough deference to them, you've completely humiliated yourself in their presence, and they may let you live. <laughs> That's the only way. Like, don't, if you don't do that, you're toast. And I, that to them was like, this is the natural response. Like, you see this thing, I mean, this is what you gotta do. Like, there's no other option. Like, come on, look at it. Like, this is what is required. Now, thank God, <laughs> he doesn't require us to do that. But his demand is that we treat him as he deserves, which is with total commitment. And commitment, I think it's two things. Commitment in a practical sense is this. In every area of your life, number one, be willing to do what he commands. But number two, trust him for what will happen as a result. Look, there's, there's people here who are not following God in every area of your life. You are cutting corners at work or at school. You are doing things with your free time and with your private time that you know are uh, unhelpful and destructive. You are you know, doing things, uh, you know, maybe you're uh, in a relationship with someone that is sexual and you know that that's not right. And you're afraid of what would happen if you actually chose for Jesus. You're afraid of what you would lose as a result. And in that state, if that was the only thing, then your obedience would be at best begrudging. At best it would be this sort of, um, this heavy-hearted type of like uh, agonizing thing. But Jesus Christ calls us to more than that. He calls us to understand what he, what he's calling us into here and to count it a joy, to count it a privilege to know him. He says, you know, the parable of the man who finds a treasure and, and then, you know, sells all he has to buy the field. And it says, with joy, goes and sells all he has to buy this field. And why would the man do it with joy? Because he understood that everything he had was nothing compared to what he would gain. And that's the type of attitude we are supposed to have towards Jesus. Everything I have versus you, you, clearly, everything. And that's why we do what he calls us to do. And we do it trusting in whatever results come. If it results in loss, we trust him. We understand, okay, I trust you. I'm going to keep on going. You know, some people might be thinking, where does grace fit into all this? You know, I thought we were saved by grace. I thought this was a gift from God, but this sounds really tough and really like, uh, like burdensome. Well, it actually is the foundation. Well, sorry, grace fits into the foundation of this very dynamic. This dynamic of commitment and discipleship, grace is found right there in the foundation of it. Total obedience is not the entry point. Total commitment is. Now, we can be totally committed. No, and God knows, you will not totally obey him. But total commitment means God, I'm, I'm submitting myself to you. God, I want to say I'm all in. I'm all in. 
And as we go through it, yeah, we fumble along the way, but that submission is born out of the grace He's had towards us. The reason that we submit, the reason that we commit ourselves to Him is because, what do we do? We're following Him. And where does He go? He goes to the cross for us. He goes and He says, pick up your cross and follow me. We're following Him because He picked up His cross. He showed us His commitment, His sacrifice. He's displayed it for us. And the only right, the only appropriate response to such a complete love and self-giving is what? To be completely loving and self-giving in response. To see what He has done for us and said, well, I, I'm all in, God. I'm all in. And as we do that, as we submit ourselves to Him, what we should see is over time, we grow in understanding. We grow in application of what it means for Jesus Christ to be the, the priority of your life. We are, we're on a journey of discipleship here. We come in, as it, the word disciple means learner, it means you know, someone who's learning. We're learning along the way, and this means that as a Christian, however long your life is going to be, your whole, the whole length of your life will be characterized by a state of renovation. You're always going to be repairing and rebuilding and renovating something. We are essentially the Montreal city of human beings. Like, just under construction all the time. <laughs> Never done. You know, traffic cones and detours, just part of the charm of the city. That's the life of a Christian. We're always under renovation, always under construction, all the time. We're learning, we're growing. And, that, and that, this is done with joy. We, he, we are able to give up what He's calling us to give up because underneath it all, we see Him as better. We see following Him as better. And I think when we do that, when we have that type of attitude, that joyful attitude, we are able to become what verse 34 and 35 call us to be, which is salt. We are able to be distinctive in the right way. We are able to, to bring about the right type of glory to God. And, and you know, when you connect this to what uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, where it says, people will see your good deeds and glorify my Father in heaven. The idea is that we are living in such a way that gives glory to God. That's what it means to be salt. How do we do that? We do it with joy. We do it by living a life that is, has a distinguishable feature of joy to it. Uh, I love what N.T. Wright says about this passage. He says, uh, we are to be the people through whom God's world is kept wholesome and made tasty is weird, but <laughs> I like it. Kept tasty, or well, made tasty. Yeah, that makes sense. But that's giving glory to God. And when we're connected back to what actually we are chasing in this world, there's a great reversal of expectation here as well. Because Jesus is better. What we're chasing in this world, what we're looking after to fill our hearts, we don't know it often, but what we're looking for is Jesus. What we think we're looking for is comfort, or meaning, or beauty, or companionship, or acceptance, or freedom. But all of those things are found in a truer and deeper way in discipleship to Christ. All of that is found in Him. So whether you know it or not, what you're seeking after in life, you're actually looking for Jesus. And when you commit yourself to Him, you'll see. I love this quote by David Livingston because I think he encapsulates it well. David Livingston uh, kind of was a, a missionary slash explorer who did a lot of work in Africa and um, he, uh, he was asked a lot like, oh, how did you do it? 
you know, like, man, it sounds so tough. And he, he, he began to kind of loathe the question. And he writes this. He says, for my part, for my own part, I never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending much of my life in Africa. Is it a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, in the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and again with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charity, charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this be only for a moment. All these are nothing when compared to the glory which shall be revealed in, in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. I love his attitude and I think that is exactly what we will attest to when we take Jesus at his word. When we go all in on Jesus, when we make him the highest priority, we're going to get to the end of our life and can look back and say, I never made a sacrifice. Why don't we pray together? We thank you, God, for your supreme satisfaction that you offer us. We thank you, God, that though we rail and search for so much in this world, that you are what our heart desires above it all. And Lord, help us to let that truth sink deep into our hearts. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you might make this a renewing, a renewing reality to us, that each morning as we wake up, we wake up refreshed and reinvigorated by your presence, ready to do your will. We ask, Lord, that through the difficult times, that we would show commitment to you because that is what you deserve. That is, that is our true, that is our right, that is our reasonable act of worship. We pray, Lord, that you might glorify yourself in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find out more about us and the church at the website peoplesmontreal.org where you will find our service times, location, more sermons, and additional resources. Have a great day.